This hearing will come to order. Uh, I, I want to welcome uh, our, our witnesses, our, our nominees. Uh, first of all, I want to thank you for your past service. Uh, I certainly want to thank you for your willingness to serve your nation again. Um, these nomination hearings are always pretty interesting. We have a wide range of, of different uh, organizations and, and sometimes uh, countries that we're talking about. So uh, we learn an awful lot here. I, I hope uh, you'll have a good uh, an enjoyable experience here. The position of an ambassador, I think, is just extremely important. Uh, I know Senator Gardner was talking ahead of time you know, how important it is and how valued it is when we travel overseas. I'm sure uh, Senators uh, Rish and, and Sheen will agree with this. Uh, the, the, first of all, the professional Foreign Service people are just extraordinary individuals. I mean, almost without exception. And uh, the ambassadors are just so important at, at setting those trips up for us and, and making them so valuable. But you obviously, from my standpoint, it's just like a salesperson in, in, uh, in a business. You, you obviously are representing the country or to the company to the customer, but also the customer back to the con company. Same thing here. You will be representing the United States of America, uh, a country, country I think is the greatest in the, in the history of mankind, a phenomenal force for good in the world, and it's your responsibility to represent us well. At the same time, represent the country that you're ambassador to back to Congress, back to the people of the United States. It's, it's a serious responsibility. And again, I really do appreciate the fact you're willing to take that on. So without further ado, because I don't have a whole lot of voice left, I'll turn it over to our ranking member, Senator Shaheen. Um, thank you, Mr. Chairman. And I don't have a statement, but I would just like to echo the thanks to each of you for your willingness to take on these very important positions and to point out that um, several of you are really at the center of what is um, focused the world's attention right now in terms of what's happening in Europe with refugees, what's happening in Europe with Putin's um, aggression into Eastern Europe. And so you will be on the front lines of some very challenging issues for um, your tenure as ambassador. And so thank you very much for your willingness to be in these very important positions at this very difficult time. Thank you, Senator Shaheen. We, we do have uh, Senator Markey who would like to introduce uh, Mr. David McKean. Would like to do that, Senator Markey, if you're prepared? Thank you, Mr. Chairman, very much. Uh, and it is my honor to uh, introduce again to this committee David McCain. Uh, David uh, was the staff director. Uh, David has dedicated his life, you know, to this committee and the issues that are central to uh, the well-being of our nation going forward. And uh, I know he's here with his uh, wife, Kathleen, and their three children, Shaw and Christian and Kay. And, uh, and I know that um, everybody who knows him is proud um, to uh, say that they believe that somebody is as qualified as a human being can be to have a position like this. Uh, he is a Massachusetts native. Uh, he proves once again that Massachusetts isn't just the Bay State, that we're the brain state. And uh, if you Googled it, David's, 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 David's position, David's picture would uh, come up. Uh, he's done you know, this kind of work for his entire life. He is currently Director of Policy and Planning at the State Department. He joined the State Department in April of 2012 as a senior advisor to um, Secretary of State Clinton, uh, and he directed 
the policy planning staff to lay the foundation for expanding global development cooperation with China in the areas of food security and nutrition and humanitarian assistance and disaster preparedness. He played an instrumental role in shaping the U.S. policy in support of a lasting and just peace in uh, Colombia. He was central in focusing uh, Secretary Kerry's uh, focus on uh, a nationwide elections in Nigeria, which were held in March of 2015 and were followed by Nigeria's first ever peaceful transfer of power from one political party to another. He worked to maintain focus on international support for Ukraine as it uh, moves along its path of reform on support for transatlantic sanctions against Russia and an end to military intervention there and to ensure that we remain steadfast in our commitment to Ukraine's sovereignty and independence. He held the policy and planning talks with more than 15 other countries and most notably he held the first ever U.S.-India policy planning talks with uh, the in Indian Ministry of External Affairs. His work in the State Department brings him full circle from the beginning of his career in 1981 when he taught in Swaziland. Uh, it's just an amazing career. Uh, he began his career uh, up here working uh, for John Kerry, uh, and it has moved through all of these years in an unbroken path of service to our nation. Uh, he served uh, uh, on, uh, on just about every issue discussion that we've had from A to Z, from Afghanistan to Zimbabwe uh, on this committee. He was in the room. Uh, he was helping to shape the way in which those issues would be, um, uh, would be shaped. And I can tell you uh, that no one will ever have a higher endorsement uh, from John Kerry uh, to serve in our foreign uh, service, to serve uh, over, to serve the United States in such an important position as uh, uh, David will uh, receive from the Secretary. So I thank you, Mr. Chairman, for giving you, giving me the opportunity to be able to tout this, this great Americans. Um, uh, history, but uh, uh, rest assured that we're well served no matter where he is uh, in the world. And I thank you. So, so you're supporting the nomination. Uh, but by the way, I, I think Senator Rich would probably agree with me on this being a former Wisconsinite. We just refer to Wisconsin as God's country. But uh, you know, we, pre we appreciate uh, the fact that you, you, you like your state as well. Yeah, we, we think of cheese when we think of Wisconsin. Well, that's a good thing. <laughs> well, based on that excellent introduction, we might as well go a little out of order here. Uh, and we'll start with uh, Mr. David McKean, who's being nominated to be the U.S. Ambassador to Luxembourg, with my uh, colleague also pointing out that's a pretty nice post. But uh, Mr. McKean, why don't you start your testimony? Thanks very much. Mr. Chairman and distinguished members of the committee, good afternoon. I'm honored to appear before you today as President Obama's nominee to serve as the next ambassador to Luxembourg. I'm deeply grateful to the President and to Secretary Kerry for the confidence and trust they've placed in me with this nomination. I'd also like to thank Senator Markey for his generous introduction. As Senator Markey has noted, I spent many years working as a staff member and chief of staff for Senator Kerry, and I'm particularly honored to be testifying in front of a committee for which I served as staff director. My journey to this point would not have been possible without the support and guidance of my family, my children, Shaw, Christian, and Kay, who are not here, 
and most especially my wife of 27 years, Kathleen, who is here today. During my lifetime, I've traveled over 65 countries, having visited more than 30 in my current capacity as Director of Policy Planning at the Department of State. The Grand Duchy of Luxembourg was the very first country I ever visited in 1972. Luxembourg is at the heart of Europe, both geographically and politically. If confirmed by the Senate, I pledge to devote my time and efforts to enhancing the already strong relationship between our two countries, one that is based on both historical ties and Luxembourgers' positive views of America. Luxembourg citizens are deeply appreciative of the sacrifices American troops made during World War II to defeat the Nazis and liberate their country. The over 5,000 graves in the Luxembourg military American Military Cemetery serve as a reminder of the sacrifice borne by so many for the liberties that Luxembourgers enjoy today. One of those graves is that of General George Patton, whose wife was from my hometown of Hamilton, Massachusetts. The General and Mrs. Patton had planned to retire there, but it was not to be. His simple grave in Luxembourg is a reflection of his desire to be laid to rest alongside the men of the Third Army and perhaps serves as his final lesson, lesson in leadership. Leadership is important to me, and over the last three years at the State Department, I've visited many of our embassies around the world. I've developed an admiration for the Foreign Service officers and locally employed staff who serve with dedication and determination to advance United States foreign policy goals worldwide. It will be an honor for me to lead them at our mission in Luxembourg during a critical time in Europe. Luxembourg is concluding its six-month presidency of the Council of the European Union during which the agenda has been dominated by the refugee crisis affecting Europe. The unprecedented levels of new arrivals have posed considerable challenges to the Union, and Luxembourg has used the Council presidency to help foster dialogue and forge consensus. Luxembourg has also stepped up recently in other areas, especially in the area of humanitarian assistance. Overall, Luxembourg commits over 1% of its GNP to assistance. Commercial ties between Luxembourg and the United States have been historically strong. The United States exports over $1.5 billion worth of goods to Luxembourg, and if confirmed, I will make trade promotion and Luxembourg direct investment into the U.S. a priority so that we can increase the market for U.S. goods and services and help create jobs and value here at home. A major component of that effort will be, the, will be to advance discussions on the transatlantic trade and investment partnership. Another issue that we'll be addressing in 2016 is Russia's involvement in Ukraine and the sanctions that are in place against Russia. Russia's violations of Ukrainian sovereignty cannot stand, and if confirmed, I will work with the Luxembourg government to ensure their continued support of EU sanctions until the Minsk Accords are fully implemented. The recent events in Paris have shown that no nation in Europe can take its liberties and freedoms for granted. If confirmed, I will do all I can working with the government of Luxembourg to advance our shared vision of a Europe that is whole, free, safe, and at peace. Thank you again for the privilege of appearing before you today, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you, Mr. McKean. Now, now we'll go back to our previously scheduled order. Our, our next witness would be Ms. Kathleen Hill. Ms. Hill is nominated to be the U.S. Ambassador to the Republic of Malta. Ms. Hill is a career member of the Foreign Service and currently serves as Senior Advisor in the Office of the Executive Secretary at the Department of State. 
Previously, Ms. Hill has held positions within the State Department's Bureau of European Affairs and the Bureaus of Near Eastern Affairs and South and Central Asian Affairs. Ms. Hill also has served at multiple overseas posts, including Canada, Italy, and Serbia. Ms. Hill. Thank you, Chairman Johnson, Senator Shaheen, and distinguished members of the committee. It is an honor to appear before you today as President Obama's nominee to serve as the next United States Ambassador to Malta. I look forward to working with Congress and this committee to advance U.S. interests in Malta. I am deeply grateful to the President and Secretary Kerry for the trust they have placed in me by nominating me for this position, especially at a time when we face some of the most daunting security challenges. Our hearts are with all those who have lost loved ones in recent weeks in France, Turkey, Lebanon, and over the Sinai en route home to Russia. Such events make me even more thankful for the support of my family, my mother Marianne, who is here today, along with my brother-in-law Neil and my niece Mora, as well as my sister Renee and other nieces Grace and Colleen, who could not be with us today. As with all Foreign Service families, it is their encouragement that helps us sustain us as we serve our country in the farthest reaches of the world. For two and a half years, I managed Secretary Kerry's travel, visiting more than 60 countries and witnessing the incredible value of diplomacy and how every country can be a partner to reach our common goals, such as security, prosperity, and promoting democratic values. I hope to incorporate what I've learned in strengthening our partnership with Malta in these areas. I have served three tours in Southern and Southeastern Europe, and more recently, I led the Arab Spring evacuations of Libya, Tunisia, and Egypt, which gave me extensive experience working two of the key issues of the Mediterranean countries, regional security and refugees. In every position I have held, I have encouraged teamwork, empowerment, and staff development to achieve success. If confirmed, I plan to implement that same formula for success at our mission in Malta. Ties between the United States and Malta date back to the early 19th century when Valletta, one of the finest natural harbors in the Mediterranean, was the base for the U.S. Navy's actions against the Barbary pirates. Malta's location continues to position the country as a significant actor in maintaining security in the Mediterranean. As a member of the European Union and the Schengen Treaty, Malta is responsible for enforcing the Schengen Zone's common border and EU customs control. It also sits in the middle of the world's busiest shipping lanes, with over a third of the world's shipping transiting the waters between Malta and Italy. Malta is a close ally to the United States and supports us on regional issues. During the period of unrest in Libya that began in February 2011, I witnessed firsthand the important role Malta played, supporting the evacuation of more than 20,000 foreign nationals, including 200 American citizens, coordinating humanitarian aid to the people of Libya, and providing assistance to international forces. Shortly thereafter, Embassy Valletta hosted the department's Libya external office before it moved to Tunisia, and the government of Malta supported the external office's presence by accrediting our increased staffing. A participant in the NATO Partnership for Peace since 2008, Malta remained a steadfast partner in defense. U.S. Navy ships visit on a semi-regular basis, while the Maltese military actively participate in regional exercise on search and rescue, regional maritime awareness, and security. We also work closely with Malta to address irregular migration. The U.S. Coast Guard has trained the armed forces of Malta to operate and navigate fast response boats and patrol vessels in order to provide assistance to refugees and support to law enforcement operations. On our bilateral defense cooperation, the United States and Malta do not have a status of forces agreement, which limits the parameters of further engagement. If confirmed, 
I will continue to highlight the strategic defense and economic benefits of a SOFA with senior Maltese political leaders and influential business and commercial leaders. A SOFA would facilitate more regular ship visits and further enhance security cooperation between our two countries. If confirmed, I will continue the work of my predecessor in supporting and encouraging increased bilateral trade, currently valued at more than $1 billion. It is estimated that one of every 30 jobs in Malta is linked to a U.S. business. Our mission will continue to support the Select USA initiative to encourage Maltese investment in the U.S. and work to advance and expand the ability of U.S. businesses to invest in Malta, a conduit for markets in Europe and North Africa. Mr. Chairman and members of the committee, I would like to thank you again for this opportunity to appear before you. If confirmed, I will dedicate myself to representing the best of the United States in Malta and working with this valued and historic partner to advance U.S. foreign policy. I look forward to answering your questions. Thank you, Ms. Hill. Our next witness is Mr. Eric Rubin. Mr. Rubin is nominated to be the U.S. Ambassador to the Republic of Bulgaria. Mr. Rubin is a career member of the Foreign Service and most recently served as Deputy Assistant Secretary in the Bureau of European and Eurasian Affairs from 2011 until August of 2015. Mr. Rubin previously served at the U.S. Embassies in Moscow and Ukraine and the U.S. Consulate in uh, Thailand. Mr. Rubin. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Shaheen, and distinguished members of the committee. It is a privilege to appear before you today as President Obama's nominee to be the United States Ambassador to Bulgaria. I am humbled and honored by the trust that President Obama and Secretary Kerry have placed in me, and I thank you for your time and your willingness to consider my nomination. Mr. Chairman, members of the committee, for over 30 years, I have cherished my association with the United States Foreign Service. On four continents, I've done my utmost to advance the national interests of our country and the values and priorities that we share as Americans. For me, appearing before you to ask you to consider my nomination is also a chance to express my gratitude for the opportunity I've had to serve our country and to advocate for our shared vision of a world based on peace, prosperity, and liberty. Before I go further, please allow me to acknowledge some of my family members, both those who are here with me today and those who are not. I am forever grateful to my parents who introduced me to the wider world and taught me not to accept things as they are, but to try to change them for the better. I'm deeply grateful to my wife, Nicole Simmons, who's here with me today, for her love and support over these past 32 years. She's been my constant advisor, best friend, and advocate. Together with our two beautiful daughters, Rachel, who's here with me today, and Liana, she's also been my constant partner in the work we have done to represent the United States and the American people. I first visited Bulgaria in 1991 when I went to organize the first security dialogue and military-to-military -military exchanges between our two countries at the end of the Cold War. Those were heady but difficult days. Bulgarians set a course for the future toward European integration and the Atlantic Alliance. Bulgarians have achieved much in the years since. Bulgaria today is a staunch NATO ally that lies in a strategic location at the southeastern edge of the European Union. But there's much more that we can and should do together. When Secretary Kerry visited Bulgaria in January, he recognized the important collaboration between our countries and announced jointly with Bulgaria the formation of bilateral working groups on national security and defense, energy security, education and people-to-people -people ties, and the rule of law. These working groups have been so well received that we recently added a counterterrorism working group which first met last week. Bulgaria is among the newer NATO members and has the second lowest GDP per capita in the alliance. Nonetheless, it has been a stalwart ally since becoming a member of the alliance. It sent troops to and took casualties in Iraq and Afghanistan. It has been a tireless participant in training exercises and host one of NATO's force integration units on the eastern flank. 
is prudently setting aside more resources toward modernizing its military and preparing for tomorrow's missions. Our newest bilateral working group, as I mentioned, focuses on counterterrorism. Bulgaria takes counterterrorism seriously, and the recent attacks in Paris underscore the importance of this work. Bulgaria is part of the counter-ISIL coalition and plays an important role in helping to stem the flow of foreign terrorist fighters due to its critical location at the crossroads between the Near East and Western Europe. Of course, national security is not limited to defense. Bulgaria relies almost entirely on Russia for natural gas and nuclear fuel. We are supporting Bulgaria's efforts to diversify its sources of energy in line with European Union goals. Gas from the Caspian Sea could be an important part of the solution. The rule of law affects almost every line of effort we share with Bulgaria. Though corruption is still common in Bulgaria, we are encouraged to see positive technical and legislative steps, and if confirmed, I commit myself to working to help Bulgaria tackle these difficult challenges and make further progress. On a very positive note, our trade relationship has just about doubled over the past six years. Hewlett-Packard, which already employs more than 6,000 Bulgarians, in April opened Europe's only HP technology lab, which will simulate technology and business processes and train the company's experts in Bulgaria. If confirmed, I will continue our embassy's advocacy for our commercial interests and American business. Finally, my highest priority, if I'm confirmed, will be to ensure the safety and security of the men and women working at our embassy and their family members, as well as the safety and well-being of all American citizens in Bulgaria. Mr. Chairman, members of the committee, if given the opportunity, I look forward to working with you and your colleagues on these and other important issues. I hope to be able to welcome you back to Sofia to witness the work of our dedicated embassy staff on behalf of American taxpayers, cultivating this important bilateral relationship and advancing our national interests. I thank you again for your willingness to consider my nomination. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Mr. Rubin. Our next uh, nominee is Mr. Kyle Scott. He's the nominee to be the ambassador to the Republic of Serbia. Mr. Scott is a career member of the Foreign Service and currently serves as a Department of State Senior Fellow at the German Marshall Fund. Previously, Mr. Scott served as Consul General at the U.S. Consulate in Milan and as Director of the Office of Russian Affairs at the State Department. Additionally, Mr. Scott has held positions representing the U.S. to the OSCE and the European Union and at embassies in Hungary and Russia. Mr. Scott. Chairman Johnson, Ranking Member Shaheen, members of the committee, it's an honor to appear to before you today as the President's nominee to be the Ambassador to the Republic of Serbia. I hope the committee and the Senate will share the confidence entrusted in me by the President and Secretary Kerry. I'm accompanied today by my two sons, Mark and Christian, and by my wife, Nana. They have stood by me through more than three decades in the Foreign Service including 16 moves and eight overseas postings. The family members of the Foreign Service often bear the brunt of personal sacrifice and hardship. My family are living testimony to public service on behalf of the American people, and I couldn't be prouder of them than I am today. In 35 years as a member of the Foreign Service, I have dedicated my career to improving America's security and our position in the world. Much of that time has been focused on transatlantic relations, including multiple assignments in Western, Central, and Eastern Europe. During this period, we have made great strides in forging a Europe whole, free, prosperous, and at peace. But that vision is not yet complete. Allow me to focus a few key points regarding Serbia's role in this broader vision. Serbia is a linchpin for stability and progress in the Western Balkans. 
In recent years, it has made considerable progress on its path towards Euro-Atlantic integration. And now it stands at a critical inflection point, facing difficult decisions that will forge Serbia's future and shape relations with its neighbors in ways that can contribute to broader peace and stability. It is in the interest of the United States that Serbia develops as a modern, prosperous European nation at peace with itself and its neighbors, demonstrating full respect for the rule of law and the rights of all its citizens. Over the past several years, with our strong support, Serbia has taken a strategic decision toward a Euro-Atlantic future rooted in EU membership. If confirmed, I would strive to continue this progress. This includes enacting legislative, fiscal, and regulatory reforms. It means strengthening ties among the countries of the Western Balkans, and in this regard, sustained progress toward a comprehensive normalization of the Serbia-Kosovo relationship is a fundamental requirement for the long-term regional stability of the Western Balkans. Progress also requires reinforcing and defending shared democratic values, supporting human rights, and protecting fundamental freedoms. A key to continued progress is more dynamic economic growth and reform, streamlining bureaucracy, improving competitiveness and innovation, and combating the corrosive consequences of corruption will all help Serbia become a more attractive destination for investment from American companies and a more dynamic market for U.S. exports. More recently, Serbia is also bearing a major brunt of the recent migration crisis afflicting Europe. Serbia's leaders and its people deserve to be commended for their humanitarian approach, but can also use everyone's help in managing the added burdens associated with this challenge. And finally, if confirmed, I'm committed to continue to seek resolution of two important challenges to our bilateral relationship. Those responsible for the 1999 murder of three American citizens, the Batici brothers, have never been brought to justice. The same holds true for those who allowed the mob attacks on the U.S. Embassy in 2008. I pledge unwavering efforts, if confirmed, to press the Serbian government to ensure that all who were involved in these crimes are brought to justice, regardless of their rank or position. This is a challenging agenda. I look forward to building on the leadership and dedication shown by the current U.S. Ambassador Michael Kirby, and now I can count on the experience of a talented team of Americans and locally employed staff at Embassy Belgrade, as well as the support from multiple agencies in Washington and the legislative branch. If confirmed, I'm committed to doing my utmost to promote our short shared goal, a democratic Serbia providing growth and security for its citizens at peace with all its neighbors and firmly set on a path of European integration. Thank you for granting me this opportunity to appear before the committee today, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you, Mr. Scott. Our final nominee is Mr. Carlos Torres. Mr. Torres is nominated to be the Deputy Director of the Peace Corps. Mr. Torres is currently the Associate Director for Global Operations at the Peace Corps, a position he has held since 2013. Previously, Mr. Torres served as Regional Director for the Inter-America and Pacific Region at the Peace Corps and has served as an independent consultant on international projects from 2000 until 2010. Mr. Torres also founded Zakrana uh, Corporation in 1984 and served as its President and CEO until the year 2000. Mr. Torres. Chairman Johnson, Ranking Member Shaheen, other members of the subcommittee, thank you for inviting me here today to testify before you. It is a privilege to be here as you consider my nomination to serve as the next 
Deputy Director of the Peace Corps. I would like to thank President Obama for nominating me. I am honored by this opportunity to serve my country in this role. I want to thank my family. I am accompanied today by my wife of 33 years, Anita Capizzi, and my mother, Ann Roper. Our three sons could not be with us today. They're spread out throughout the country. I would also like to thank Peace Corps Director Carrie hessler Radlett for her leadership, trust, and counsel over the past years. I am also very proud to have with me today three recently returned Peace Corps volunteers, Clara Reyes, Daniel Hinkle, and Soletia Christi. I have asked them to join us today because they are examples of how volunteers are at the center of my decision-making process every day as we work towards a more important goal, ensuring that every volunteer has a safe and productive volunteer experience. From the beginning of my career in the private sector, I have spent my life's work in the field of economic development. This is the reason why I created Carana Corporation in 1984, which provides private sector-led solutions to problems in economic development. I believe my real-world business experience has positively informed my decision-making process in my current role at Peace Corps, and if confirmed as the Deputy Director, I plan to continue to draw from this time as an entrepreneur and businessman. In December of 2009, several years after having stepped down as the Chairman and CEO of Carana Corporation, I was honored when Peace Corps asked me to put my management and international economic development skills to work by leading a comprehensive agency assessment team, which took a critical look at a wide range of Peace Corps operations and procedures. I'm extremely proud of that assessment, which focused on how Peace Corps could improve its operations, better utilize its resources, and increase its impact. The comprehensive agency assessment has served as a blueprint for the agency over the past five years and has guided many of our reforms, leading to vast improvements in the way we train and support our volunteers, how we allocate resources, and overall management and operations within the agency. These reforms, among others, have positioned the Peace Corps to make an even greater impact into the future. I was sworn in as the Regional Director for the Inter-America and Pacific Region in June of 2010 and served in that capacity for three years. In November of 2013, I was sworn in as the Associate Director for the Office of Global Operations. In both of these positions, I have been able to combine my private sector experience with the knowledge gained in carrying out the comprehensive agency assessment. The result has always been a sharp focus on improving our operations, particularly on how the agency supports its volunteers in the field. I believe that it is our moral obligation to provide all of our volunteers with the best possible experience, one that is both safe and productive. I want to assure the members of this subcommittee that these are not just words. Every decision I have made during my time at the agency is based on the foundation that as a manager at the Peace Corps, I have an obligation to do everything I can so that every volunteer has that safe and productive experience. It has been an honor to shape both the direction and the agency's significant reforms over the past five years. And I am committed, both personally and professionally, to seeing them through and continuing to provide world-class support to our Peace Corps volunteers who are changing the world every day. Thank you again for having me here today, and I look forward to answering your questions. Thank you, Mr. Torres. And again, I, I want to welcome all your family and friends that have uh, come here to the hearing. 
a number of you mentioned the uh, refugee crisis, and I guess I'd kind of like to go right down the line, uh, either through your current experience, previous experience, or your new uh, position. Uh, give me your latest insight. I'd like to be brought up to speed with, with your knowledge uh, of how the refugee crisis, uh, you know, what you're aware of. I'll start with you, Ms. Hill. Thank you, Senator Johnson. Uh, from the perspective that I've been tracking the refugee crisis, uh, from Malta's perspective, it's been a bit different this year than years past. In years past, uh, the refugee flow has gone straight through Malta. It's been a south to north flow coming up from North Africa. This year, the refugee crisis has changed. It's gone from east to west flow. So this year, Malta hasn't seen as many refugees entering the country as they have last year. As a matter of fact, this year they've had maybe a little bit over 100 refugees, and that's it. In years past, they've been in the thousands. Uh, and for a small country, that's been a heavy burden. Can, can you um, describe how they, they just stop in Malta and transit down through, or I mean, do they walk? What's going on right now is uh, some have made it to the shores, but they have, um, the Europeans now have Operation Triton going on in the Mediterranean, which is intercepting the boats and taking them to larger intake facilities in Italy. So the refugees are being shuttled around Malta to the larger intake facilities in Italy. But Malta's still been at the forefront of the burden-sharing plan for the, the European Union has just put in place. In years past, Malta has been a country that has tried to get rid of its refugees. This year, they have agreed to take refugees from Turkey and Greece in small numbers, but uh, according to the formula that the European Union has based on uh, burden-sharing for all states. Uh, so they're taking about 180 refugees this year from Turkey and Greece. So, so with Operation Trident, how quickly are refugees uh picked up? Is, uh, I mean, how, how soon are they intercepted and, and taken on board? Within how many miles, approximately? You know, Senator, I don't have the answers to that question specifically. I can get those for you. I think it's fairly quickly when they enter uh, international waters if they are discovered. Sometimes the ships make it directly to Italy without even going through any interception. Okay. Um, but if I, please. Mr. Rubin. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Uh, at the end of the Cold War, Bulgaria had a fully militarized border with Turkey, which was the border between the Warsaw Pact and NATO. And at the time of the end of the Cold War, those fortifications and fencing and walls and other uh, physical barriers were torn down. At the beginning of this refugee crisis, uh, Bulgaria faced a situation in which much of its physical border was unprotected, undefended, unfenced. Uh, and at the beginning of the crisis, uh, Bulgaria was faced with a very large inflow of migrants from Turkey uh, crossing in areas that were not patrolled. And in the initial phases, about 90,000 uh, illegal entry attempts and about 30,000 arrests were made. Since the beginning of the crisis, Bulgaria, with help from the European Union and other partners, including the United States, uh, has done much to erect uh, physical controls on the border, which is the external border of the European Union now. Uh, as well as control the areas that are not fenced. And there's been a dramatic improvement in uh, the number of refugees, migrants trying to cross illegally. Bulgaria faces less of a challenge than some of the other EU members because it is not yet a member of Schengen and therefore entering Bulgaria does not give migrants automatic entry to the rest of the EU. So for that reason, it has not been as popular a destination. Uh, that said, these numbers are very significant, uh, and we have generally assessed that the Bulgarian government and the Bulgarian border police and other agencies have done a good job uh, both in handling this, this tremendous influx but also treating uh, the migrants uh, with full respect for their rights. 
and uh, and ensuring that all procedures are followed. So, so you use the figure 90,000, 30,000 were apprehended. Can, can you just tell me what, what is the disposition of the 60 that weren't apprehended versus the 30 who were? Yeah, so the ones who were apprehended but not taken into custody essentially were turned away, and uh, I would not be able to tell you what happened after they returned to Turkey, uh, but that's obviously a, a subject that, that is, is an important question. On the question of those in Bulgaria, there are temporary detention centers. The Bulgarians have complied with all procedures in terms of registering uh, the migrants who they detained, ensuring that they have full biometrics on them, sharing that with uh, European Union agencies and international uh, agencies tracking the flow, uh, and we've been very, very pleased with the cooperation we have had in, in, in following this influx. So, so you're saying that about 60,000 are, are being detained now within Bulgaria? Uh, I don't have an exact number for Mr. Chairman. It's, it's under 30,000 and, and falling, and, uh, and I think the, the peak of the crisis, it would appear, for Bulgaria has, has passed. Now, now they're moving around Bulgaria then? Correct. Uh, Mr. Scott. Thank you very much for the question, Mr. Chairman. I, I think as we've all seen from the news, uh, Serbia is a key transit point for, for many of the flows of the refugees coming out of Turkey through Greece, Macedonia, through Serbia on their way northern, uh, towards northern Europe. Um, to put that in some, some bit of perspective, in 2014, Serbia had about 17,000 registered um, refugees. Uh, this year, especially this fall, they are registering numbers like that on a weekly basis. Um, some days as many as, as 3,000 and as high as 10,000 per day have been crossing their border. Um, Serbia's approach has been very uh, much based upon meeting their humanitarian needs. These people are not seeking to stay in Serbia. They're moving on onward, and, and Serbia is taking the approach of trying to make sure that their humanitarian needs are, are met, but also, frankly, to help them on their way. Um, north, northward. So what that means in, in Serbia's case is ensuring that they have adequate protections at their southern border so that they can process these people through in a humanitarian way. That means providing shelter for them, medical treatment for those who need it, food, and transit aid as well to move further north. Um, they've also been very cognizant of the security concerns and security needs by by trying to channel these refugees into reception centers, they are then allowed to, uh, able to process those who present themselves to the Serbian government. That means ensuring uh, proper documentation, taking biometrics, um, and then moving them on. Okay, my time has expired, uh, Senator Sheen. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I, I'm, I would like to begin with Mr. Torres. I'm uh, a big supporter of the Peace Corps. I think it does amazing work around the world. Um, but I'm very troubled by the recent um, report from the Office of the Inspector General that found that nearly one in five American Peace Corps volunteers serving around the world is sexually assaulted at some point during their service. And equally troubling was the finding in the report that about half of these victims didn't report their attacks because they would felt that it would negatively impact their standing as a Peace Corps volunteer. Now, given that you have served um, for the last couple of years as Assistant Director for Global Operations and that you were a consultant for 10 years before that, can you talk about what's going on at the in the culture of the Peace Corps that allows this to continue to happen and that um, allows that makes volunteers feel like they can't report or get help for the situation that they've been in when they've been sexually assaulted? Uh, yes, Senator, I can address that. 
Well, the Peace Corps' primary concern is the safety and security of our volunteers. Uh, we work tirelessly to create that safe <clears throat> and productive volunteer experience. In 2011, after the passage of the Cape Pusey Act, we created what we refer to as our uh, sexual assault risk reduction uh, and response program. This is a comprehensive program with over 30 components that are designed not only to better train our volunteers to avoid the risks, but also to respond in a better way to our volunteers. It has been advised by an independent council of, of, of individuals that are both uh, from the public sector, justice, defense, as well in the private sector, uh, that are experts in the field of sexual assault. I believe that the agency has made tremendous strides in this area. Uh, we have created, among other things, and specifically to address the issue of non-reporting, a system of restricted reporting. Uh, the system of restricted reporting is one that allows a volunteer to come forward, receive the services that they require, uh, with a limited number of people knowing about it. Uh, we know that a lot of, of victims of sexual assault do not come forward because they don't want it to be known or they don't want to file charges uh, or, or have it turn into a criminal case. Uh, the system of restricted reporting does that. We have seen an increase in the reporting. Uh, we believe that this is not an increase in the number of sexual assaults, but rather that it is achieving our goal of increased reporting in sexual assaults. And, I, I, and as I stated earlier, I do believe that our agency has made significant progress. There's always more that we can do, and we continue to work for that. Well, can you talk a little bit more about the kind of preparation that's provided to Peace Corps volunteers and um, the training that they get that would um, help them both in terms of addressing um, potential dangerous situations as well as um, how they're instructed if, if they are sexually assaulted? Yes. Uh so on the risk reduction side, we carry out trainings on culture, uh, hidden me messages that, that translate through culture. Uh, we, we talk to them about bystander intervention. Uh, we inform them about confidentiality and reporting uh, confidentiality options that they have available to them. Uh, a lot of work goes in to their site development and the site where they are placed. We know that volunteers are safest in their sites. Uh, so that would be another area. We, what, can you explain that a little bit more when you say safest okay. in their sites? So, what do you mean? So this, as, as you know, Peace Corps places their volunteers uh, in sites in a community. Uh, the whole Peace Corps uh, rationale behind safety and security is that by placing them in a community and having them be accepted by that community, they are safest. It is the community that protects them. Uh, so. When we, our work that we do in site development really is critical to ensuring the safety of the volunteer over their two years of service, and, and that is what we focus on. Uh, in, additional, in addition on the training, we also provide them training on how they can report, whether it be restricted or a standard report. Uh, we also inform them as to the role of the Office of the Inspector General. Uh, they always have the option to go directly to the Inspector General. We supply them with, with a hotline number as well as an email address. Uh, so they, they are receiving information from a lot of different angles. 
On the response side, they know what their options are. We remind them constantly. Our staff has undergone training in all of our posts on how to respond to a standard assault, a standard report, or how to, how to respond to a restricted report. And yet, according to the Inspector General, the, the hope for outcome from all of those measures hasn't improved significantly as I read it. Is that, do you feel like those measures have improved the situation? And um, if not, what other kinds of efforts do you think can be undertaken to address this issue? Because clearly when that's on the nightly news, it discourages people who we want to come and join the Peace Corps uh, yes, Senator. Uh, right now, the Office of the Inspector General is beginning a, a study, uh, which would be the five-year study on the implementation of the Cape Pusey Act. Uh, this study was, was called for under the legislation, uh, and I look forward to that study. I believe that they will be uh, a tough critic, but I also believe that they will be fair. Uh, I believe that this report when it is submitted to Congress will show that the agency has made these significant uh, improvements. Uh, I mentioned that we have an independent advisory board. Uh, this is also created under the KPUZ Act. They have advised us every step of the way. Uh, they have just finished their fourth annual report and with your permission I would just like to read two sentences from it which sure. I believe uh, does tell a different story. The Council continues to be impressed with the Peace Corps for its dedication to fulfill the mandates of the Cape Pusey Act and for the development of a wide range of programs and services for its volunteers. Whether implementing new policies, introducing new staff and volunteer training, or working to monitor and evaluate programs and services, the Peace Corps has demonstrated an ongoing commitment to its volunteers. This is dated October 28th. Our commitment to sexual assault and, and the risk reduction and response aspects of it really start with our director. Uh, you may be aware that our director herself was assaulted when she was a Peace Corps volunteer. She is driven to change the culture of Peace Corps. We follow her drive. I believe that she has done an excellent job and we continue to improve the Peace Corps every day. Um my time is up, but Mr. Chairman, if you don't mind, let me ask a final question, because as the Deputy Director, will this issue be part of your portfolio at the Peace Corps? Thank you, sir. This issue is part of everybody's portfolio at the Peace Corps. We have all received training. We are all a part of it. Uh, when I travel overseas and I visit a post, I attend the trainings that are related to our SARP program. Uh, it, it is everybody's job at the Peace Corps. As the Deputy Director, uh, it will be my job, and it is my job to make sure that we continue to make the progress that we need to make. Well, thank you. I very much appreciate that and, um, and that response, and I look forward to getting um, reports as part of this committee on the progress that's being made on this issue because it, it's obviously a critical challenge that needs to be overcome for the Peace Corps to continue to do the kind of work that has made it such an icon for, um, for America. Thank you, okay. Senator. And I would be happy to offer a, a visit from our experts at the Peace Corps that could meet with 
you or other members of the subcommittee that could brief you on everything we're doing and all of the changes that we have made. Thank you. We will take you up on that. Thank you, Senator Shaheen. Let me, let me go back to refugees with uh, Mr. Scott. Um, so they transit through Serbia through where? Hungary is pretty well closed air border, I believe. So it's through Croatia then? Uh, yes, sir. At the beginning, they were going mainly through Hungary. But after Hungary uh, built up its wall, they began to transit mainly through Croatia. There were uh, a brief period when that border was shut down as well, but now the cooperation between the Croatian government and the, the, the government of Serbia has, has managed to, to regularize the flow. Okay. I just see that Senator Murphy's just arrived, so Senator Murphy. Uh, thank you, Mr. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, welcome to all of you. Congratulations on your uh, nominations. Hopefully we'll move you quickly through the uh, process. Um, uh, Mr. Rubin, I wanted to um, ask you a broad question that would also uh, apply to the other members of the panel um, that are going to go to visa waiver countries, but we're having a debate here about uh, security of this country and the extent to which we can work with the administration to tighten up the visa waiver program to make sure we know who's coming into the United States. I know that the administration are, just announced some um, reforms to that program, um, but uh, I, I want to draw on your experience at the Europe and Eurasia desk over the course of the last uh, several years, and if there are comments from uh, others, uh, I welcome them. It, it, it strikes me that the backstop to the visa waiver program is the no-fly list, is our ability to determine who should and who shouldn't be on these flights. And our no-fly list is only as good as the information that we have about people that pose a risk to the United States. And our information about who poses a risk in the United States is only so good as we have um, agile um, and robust lines of communication with European governments that are doing a lot of the law enforcement actions. Now, our intelligence services communicate regularly, but sometimes, as we know, there are silos between intelligence agencies and law enforcement agencies in the United States and in European capitals. Talk to me a, a, just a little bit uh, about, um, to the extent that this is in your portfolio, uh, ways in which we should be thinking about strengthening the visa waiver program, and then what role does an ambassador play in a visa waiver country um, in trying to force the host country to get serious about populating uh, these shared databases with all of the information necessary to have a complete list of prohibited individuals. Thank you very much, Senator Murphy. Um, during my time in the European Bureau over the past four years, this subject was uh, one of our absolute top priorities, and I will say I think enormous progress was made uh, directly with the European Union and its agencies, with all the member states, uh, with a few other countries that are not European Union members but are in the visa waiver program. Uh, the issues you cite, Senator, are the absolute critical issues. Having good information early enough uh, and having ample enough information to ensure uh, that we are protecting our, our, our borders and ensuring that we're not uh, admitting anyone who shouldn't be admitted. Uh, where I'm going next, if this committee and the, the whole Senate confirms me, Bulgaria is not yet uh, a member of the visa waiver program. The Bulgarians would very much like to 
to join, uh, but I can say that in the case of Bulgaria, the cooperation has been absolutely superb on all the various forms of data sharing and information sharing that we need to ensure that travelers to the United States uh, are screened adequately. Uh, we don't have any direct flights from Bulgaria, so we don't have to deal with any direct entry problems, uh, but we do have the information on travelers coming from Bulgaria and the cooperation between our agencies on the ground, DHS, uh, the State Department's uh, International Narcotics and Law Enforcement Bureau, the Drug Enforcement Agency, all of our other agencies there. Uh, the FBI has been superb. Uh, it is obviously a regional issue. It is obviously an issue uh, that affects all of these countries. I can tell you that if I'm confirmed uh, as Bulgaria seeks to join the visa waiver program, this will be an absolute top priority, ensuring that that uh, is the most important question addressed. But given your, and this is more going backwards rather than forwards in your career, um, uh, are, is, is state been satisfied with the level of input into the databases that we have access to that come from our European partners regarding law enforcement um, or national security investigations of suspected terrorists or extremists? Um, thank you, Senator. Um, during my time in the European Bureau, I did not actually oversee any okay. uh, relations with countries that were in the visa waiver program, so I'll confess to not having the fullest picture. I can tell you, though, as part of my time as, as Deputy Assistant Secretary, as part of the team, um, it was a, a very high priority effort from the beginning, and I do know in all of our annual, biannual discussions with the EU, with the agencies, the member states, uh, a lot was accomplished. I would defer to colleagues who, who were more directly involved in that and would also be glad to get you more information on that trajectory as well during that time. Um, Mr. Um, uh, Mr. Scott, um, about a year ago, I was uh, in Serbia, uh, spent some time with uh, uh, Prime Minister Vucic. Um, was there at a fascinating moment. I happened to be there the, the day before. Um, Putin arrived uh, with a military uh, parade um, uh, uh, overflown by MiG jets. Um, and uh, it was pretty remarkable that um, on a day when he was showing off the sort of robust uh, potential military and economic commitment that Russia was prepared to make to Serbia, um, our ambassador was, at the time, begging me to come back to the United States uh, to ask for 20 or 30,000 more dollars to keep open an exchange program that was really, really important. Um, and the, it just struck me as, as an example of the extreme imbalance between the amount of attention that we pay to the Balkans and the amount of attention that the Russians pay. Um, a country like Serbia desperately wants, uh, and I think Vucic generally wants, uh, an alliance with Europe and an alliance with the West. Um, but they're getting a lot more love and a lot more attention from Moscow than they are from Washington uh, today. Um, now, we can't expect that a country like Serbia is going to make a choice, and we shouldn't. They have to have good relations with Russia. It's in their, it's, it's deeply ingrained in, in their history. But we've got to find some ways, potentially in the absence of major new appropriations for programs like that from the Congress, uh, to create some, some tighter connections. So I might just a long way of asking about um, what you know about Serbia's orientation between the EU and Russia. What are some things that we can do um, to show them that we're serious about 
tightening that connection between us and them because they are going to continue to get offers uh, as they do almost every month from Moscow to create security partnerships, uh, to create economic partnerships to draw them away. And they're not the only ones. The Montenegrins are getting those offers. Certainly the offers are always out there for, Bos for the Bosnians um, and we don't often have satisfactory counters to those offers. Thank you very much for your question, and I share the basic thrust of your concerns about uh, a more assertive Russian presence in the Western Balkans and in Serbia in particular. Um, I, I agree with you very much that it shouldn't be American policy to try to drive a wedge between the Serbian people and the Russian people. There are centuries-long historical, cultural, linguistic, uh, religious ties between the, the peoples. Uh, but the real concern is, is whether Russian government policy today is influencing um, Serbia or other countries of the Western Balkans in, in ways that would be detrimental to our interests. And, and in this regard, and, and, and uh, I, I know that you met with Prime Minister Vucic and I also had the opportunity to hear you speaking of your general impressions at the German Marshall Fund after, after that trip, um, you know that he and his government have made a commitment, a strategic commitment towards the direction that he would like to see his country go, towards the West, towards European Union membership. And I think that we should be doing everything possible that we can to encourage them and to help them along that path, to strengthen their institutional um, interweaving with Euro-Atlantic institutions, and that means first and foremost for them at this point, the European Union, they are not interested in joining NATO at this moment, but also in relationships with the United States. I think that our embassy can play a big role in that, in that um, process. Part of it is, is in order to um, have a counter narrative to the narrative which the Russians are trying to put forward, and that means the ambassador and other members of the mission need to be out there in the public, speaking to the press, speaking to the Serbian population, traveling around the country. We need to use the American centers that we have in Serbia as platforms to allow the Serbian people to get to better know um, what Western and, and in particular American policies are all about, because there's a lot of uh, of uh, false messages that are being presented by the Russians. And we need to help support the basic institutions which can get out alternate messages to the ones which the Russians are trying to send out. That means strengthening an independent press. It means working with civil society organizations. It means basic programs that embassies run such as English language teaching so that Serbian youth have greater access to other sources of information as Russia itself is seeking to penetrate through the use of Serbian language um, radio programs providing the Russian message. And it means using our exchange programs. It means using our, our student visa programs to make sure that Serbian youth are aware of where America is, the values that we stand for, and the policies that we're putting forward. Uh, well said. I, one Just last piece of commentary, Mr. Chairman. It's just... Spending time in the Balkans is just an advertisement for how poorly resourced we are uh, when it comes to our foreign aid budget. USAID, I think, is already pulled out or in the process of pulling out of Serbia, and so we have less tools than ever before to try to counter all of these resources and all of this money that Russia is flowing into these regions. And as we talk about uh, a, a strategy to try to rebut their growing influence, it's got to involve giving more tools to our ambassadors in the region to try to do all of the things that you're saying. Because you're going to get there and you're going to realize that for, 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 for as spot on as you were about the things you need to do, you're just not going to have the resources that you need or that you want. And we We've got to give it to you. Thank you. Uh, thank you for allowing me a little extra time, Mr. Chairman. 
Well, we got, we got to prioritize spending. Well, let's go back to uh, refugees. Uh, Mr. McKean, can you add anything to what you've already heard from the other uh, nominees? Uh, thank you, Senator Johnson. Uh, in Luxembourg, the, uh, the refugee problem is uh, not as acute as it is with its neighbors. Um, it's a small country. It's actually relatively difficult to get there. But I think, uh, importantly, that Luxembourg recognizes uh, what an important issue this is, which is why it has uh, actually contributed uh, $24 million to um, Iraq and Syrian refugees in the Middle East um, at the source. Um, as you know, we've contributed $4.5 billion, but uh, again, this is a significant contribution uh, by Luxembourg. Uh, they've also recently, um, for the last several months, been, uh, as I mentioned in my opening statement, been president of the EU, and they've, uh, they have managed to uh, uh, forge a consensus on the resettlement of 160,000 refugees. I don't have the details on that, but uh, it is a significant number. Obviously, it's going it's to require a lot more. Uh, Luxembourg itself has committed to taking 550 refugees over the next two years, and in fact took the first 30 from uh, Syrians from, uh, or, or those from who were, uh, had landed in Greece and uh, were um, settled in Luxembourg. What is your sense of the current rate of flow of refugees? Increase? Is it tapered off? Is it steady? Well, I think it, it clearly increased uh, recently, about a month ago and is now steady, but it's significant. Um, it's very significant. And of course, it's uh, significant in a number of the countries that border Iraq and Syria as well. Turkey has a million, million and a half in Lebanon, million in Jordan. Mr. Torres, to what extent is the Peace Corps involved with this uh, crisis? Uh, Senator, the Peace Corps. Uh, Senator, the Peace Corps does not get involved in refugee issues, so so we do not so, do any work in, in the area of Syria, Syrian refugees. Senator Murphy uh, mentioned the visa waiver program. We had a hearing in uh, my committee, Homeland Security, Government Affairs, and talking about the the Syrian refugee issue and uh, the vetting process there. And I think the the witnesses. You know, determined terrorist refugee program is probably not the most efficient way to get here. Probably relatively high risk of getting caught, but they expressed a fair amount of concern about the visa waiver program. Uh, can you describe your concern? You know, in, in what way is that? Uh, you know, does it present vulnerabilities? Let's start with you, Ms. Hill. Thank you, Senator. Uh, as it relates to Malta, Malta is a visa waiver country. They are a member of the program. Uh, as far as refugees in Malta, uh, because of the lengthy time in which it takes to even get declared as an official refugee in Malta, it can take up to a year for the Maltese to even declare an irregular migrant a refugee. Even then, you only get uh, refugee travel documents that does not convey citizenship. Only citizens of visa waiver countries can travel on the visa waiver program. Uh, so at, from Malta, I see the threat uh, as not very high at this point. Uh, because it's so hard to get the citizenship to get the actual citizenship passport. But if I'm confirmed, I will certainly work with the Maltese government to ensure that we maintain the security of the program and any enhancements that might be decided on back here in Washington. Mr. Rubin. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Bulgaria is trying to uh, join the visa waiver program at the moment. 
uh, the numbers for uh, visa refusal rates are sufficiently high that that is not an immediate prospect, but if confirmed, uh, I would make it a, a very high priority to ensure that in our discussions with the Bulgarians, we made clear that we could only consider going forward under any circumstances if, if all of the security criteria were met. Bulgaria has done a very good job in, in information sharing with us on biometrics. It, it is difficult to get Bulgarian citizenship. Uh, they've done well on passport security and, and reporting stolen passports uh, and false passports to international agencies, and including Interpol. Uh, so I think the track record is good uh, if that were to happen, and that was something that obviously I would take very, very seriously if I'm confirmed and, and we continue to talk to them about this. Mr. Scott, are you aware of any vulnerabilities that concern you? Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Serbia is not a member of the visa waiver program, nor do they have any direct flights uh, to the United States, although they are hopeful to begin direct flights to the United States uh, around the summer of next year. Um, in that sense, all Serbian citizens must receive visas, they must go through the standard uh, um, name checking process that the visa process requires and they also must have their biometrics taken uh, during that process. Um, but I think one of the things that should I be confirmed that I would certainly be focusing on is ensuring that Serbia is as active as possible in information sharing with our services on, on uh, um, those people who might come to their attention who would be of concern. Again, I am asking based on past experience as well, Mr. McKean, are you aware of any vulnerabilities that concern you? Uh, Luxembourg is a member of the uh, uh, visa waiver, waiver program. There are no direct passenger flights between Luxembourg and the United States, so they must go through a, uh, uh, through a connection hub. Um, as Ms. Hill indicated, um, only citizens are, uh, of Luxembourg would be uh, um, um, appropriate for the visa waiver program, and if there's a seven-year um, requirement, residency requirement, in order to become a, uh, a citizen of Luxembourg, so it's fairly stringent. Um, moreover, the government of Luxembourg has been uh, a very good partner in terms of sharing information. So uh, I, again, would, uh, would consider the vulnerability to be quite low, but uh, I know that both Congress and the White House is looking at the program, and if there are any enhancement or changes, uh, I would do everything uh, possible if confirmed to make sure that the government of Luxembourg complies with those changes. Okay, thank you. Uh, Senator Sheen. Thank you. Um, Mr. Scott, I, I want to pursue some of the line of questioning that Senator Murphy was um, raising with respect to Serbia. And I share his belief that we need to um, try and be more focused on what's happening in the Balkans. I think um, we've seen some tremendous progress there since um, Yugoslavia split up into all of the countries in the Balkans, and um, I, I think we need to, to do more and think about how better we can support them as um, they continue to look uh, toward the West, and certainly with Serbia as it's um, pursuing its entry into the EU. And I wonder if you could update um, me briefly on where they are with that and um, what concerns they might have before um, finishing their final process for membership in the EU. 
Thank you very much for the, for the question, and, and I share very much your, your approach to the importance of the Balkans. Uh, you know, the people of the Balkans have a saying that, that their own region is a, a barrel of gunpowder, and they, they recognize its potential uh, for, for um, tensions. Um, in the case of Serbia's uh, ambitions to join the EU, I, I think that they are moving ahead. They are making um, significant progress, in fact, uh, across the board. Um, and uh, however, the current European Commission, which was brought in, has announced that no countries will be getting in over the next five years of this commission. So really, we're talking about serious preparatory work, making sure that they open chapters and close chapters in the, in I believe it's 35 chapters right. that are necessary for, for admission into the European Union. Um, we are very hopeful and, in fact, expect that um, in less than two weeks' time, they will open their first two chapters formally. Um, they need to continue to make progress in opening and closing chapters over the period of the next coming years so that, in fact, when the European Union has reached a point where they are ready for new membership, that Serbia will be as ready as possible for that. As to the difficulties involved, clearly there are, there are rule of law issues that still need to be addressed. Um, but I think most experts would say the most difficult issues are those dealing with their neighbors' uh, regional relations, and in particular, their relationship with Kosovo. And one of the first two chapters, in fact, that will be opened on December 14th is Chapter 35, which deals with uh, this very issue of relations with our neighbors and how to move forward. And here we're committed. I don't, I don't think it's, I think it's unreasonable to expect that, uh, that there's going to be massive, significant progress in the short term on this issue. What we're really talking about is a slow negotiation towards a comprehensive normalization of relations between Serbia and Kosovo over time. Right, and I was very um, excited when I saw that um, Serbia and Kosovo had reached an initial agreement on how to move forward um, several years ago. How concerned do you think we should be about the unrest in Kosovo right now with respect to trying to begin implementation of that agreement? Thank you very much for the question. Um, of course, I will have to defer to Ambassador Dalawi in Kosovo on, on the details of that. But I think what we have seen over time is that, that domestic politics in all of the countries of the region can have an impact on the pace of progress. Um, and we've had other periods in which there have been holds as, as after elections, countries have tried to put together governments and everything. So it's clear, I think, that having an authoritative government ready to move forward is a clear um, necessity for making significant progress. In, in that regard, all I can say is that in Serbia, the, the prime minister and his government seem committed to moving forward on this process. And um, I look forward, should I be confirmed, to working with them to encourage progress in that direction. Um, I appreciate that. I, I was in um, meeting with some officials from the Balkans this summer, and they raised concerns about Russian influence whenever there was an opportunity, potential unrest to um, encourage that unrest in subversive kinds of ways. To what extent are we seeing any of that kind of influence, or can you speak to that um, with what's going on right now in terms of the relationship between Serbia and Kosovo? I think that uh, I would agree with your general um, view of, of Russian behavior in an attempt to essentially split allies apart and, and, and uh, 
uh, create areas of uncertainty and, and, and potential unrest, and we've seen that also in the Western Balkans, uh, without a doubt. Um, in the case of Serbia, their dependency on Russia, especially in the area of energy, is significant, and, and that's why I think it's important um, that the United States and the European Union are moving forward on efforts for, towards greater diversification of energy resources, towards a, a, a broader strategic plan for all of Europe um, to reduce de uh, dependencies upon Russia or any, any single source of energy. Um, that's clearly the case in Serbia. Serbia imports all of its gas from Russia. And although the gas it imports is not all the gas they have because they have their own domestic gas, the company which controls the domestic gas is also owned by Russia. Um, but the government is clearly aware of that. I think working on interconnectors, especially the Bulgarian interconnector through the, uh, the southern route will be key steps forward for the future. Also diversification of resources. And here I think there are great opportunities for American companies in new and renewable sources of energy, carbon sequestration and other issues where I think there are opportunities for cooperation with Serbia, both for their benefit, but also for our own. Um, I have to say before I leave Serbia that I had the opportunity to be part of the delegation to um, the memorial remembrance of the Srebrenica massacre this summer. And I very much appreciated, despite the incident that happened there, uh, the Serbian prime minister for going there, um, for uh, meeting with the Bosnian officials and for paying his respects at that remembrance, and uh, I certainly hope they will continue those kinds of symbolic gestures because I think they're very important in reducing tensions within the region. Um, I'm about to run out of time, but I want to go um, to you, Mr. Rubin, keep going, go um, on the energy issues because you raised that um, in your testimony. and. It's my understanding that there's a pipeline proposed across Greece that um, would have a spur that would go into Bulgaria, which if it were open would be very positive in terms of providing some alternative energy for Bulgaria, and that there is just um, a minor, it was described to me as a minor approval that is remaining for Greece before construction on that pipeline can begin. As, as ambassador to Bulgaria. How do you see your role in trying to encourage those kinds of projects to get done so that um, there is energy diversification? Uh, thank you, Senator Shaheen. Um, if I'm confirmed, this will be absolutely one of the top priorities for me as ambassador, uh, both because of the necessity of helping Bulgaria achieve diverse energy supplies, but also because of the role that Bulgaria plays in the region as a potential energy hub. Uh, the interconnector pipeline that you described with Greece uh, is close to agreement. I want to knock on the table when I say that, and I'd like to believe that if I'm confirmed before I even get to post, it will have already been, been signed and agreed and work can start. Uh, they are very close. This has required uh, agreements by both governments as well as the European Union. Uh, and with the change of governments in Greece and other things, there have been, I think, some delays in just getting the agreement finalized, but I, there's an agreement in principle. It's not a large length of pipeline. It's actually not a very expensive project as these things go, and it would open up a tremendous new set of possibilities. One would be opening up the flow of uh, Transcaspian gas through Turkey to Bulgaria. The other would be 
the gas coming through Greece, both through the connectors with Western Europe, but also through the LNG terminals in Greece. Uh, so it's a lot of bang for the buck, and they are close, and this will be a major priority to see this through, and then to follow up with all the other priority projects to ensure that there's energy diversification uh, for Bulgaria, but also for the wider region. Well, thank you. I think anything we can do to encourage um, that project and others are very important as we look at the long-term stability for the region. And that brings me back to Russian influence because, again, um, when I was meeting with Eastern European officials, I didn't meet with anyone from Bulgaria, but I certainly heard from um, some other of our Eastern European allies great concern about Russian influence in Eastern Europe, uh, particularly, and this committee has had a hearing about um, the, what I would call propaganda that Russia is um, putting into Eastern Europe on a daily basis and the amount of money that they're spending on that. So can you tell me, is that something that the Bulgarians are concerned about? Are they seeing that kind of um, propaganda and the influence that it's bringing into the region? And what's, what can you do as ambassador to help, um, to help respond to that? Thank you, Senator. Um, I think if I'm confirmed, this will be another of my very top priorities to personally get out there and aggressively make the case to Bulgarians across the country, not just in Sofia, but everywhere in the country, in uh, every uh, group of, whether it's young people or uh, people who may not have traditional uh, connections with the United States, who may not have, have seen American diplomats before, the importance of the shared values and the shared objectives that we have as NATO allies, uh, that we have as members of the Euro-Atlantic community. Uh, the good news, obviously, for Bulgaria is they, they have achieved membership in both NATO and the EU. That is, is hugely important, and the progress that they've made since 91 is, is astounding. So there's a lot to celebrate. But there is a constant drumbeat in the background saying, you'll never get there, you're not going to be accepted, you ought to, to give up on this Western project and just come back to, to your natural location. And that spread through local media, that spread, uh, I, I think, through, through all sorts of, of groups that, that receive subsidies to do that. So I, I think recognizing that, working with uh, our natural friends and allies in Bulgaria, which is a majority of Bulgarian society, a majority of the parliament, uh, who are, are strong supporters of the alliance, who recognize the value of this choice that the country has made. Uh, but then obviously as ambassador, I and, and my team need to follow through and do everything we can to, to make the case ourselves and then to work to, to get the resources for that. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Okay, he's telling me to continue. So, um, Mr. McCain. First of all, let me say how nice it is to see you in that position. Um, and having served on this committee when you were the committee staff director, um, we have missed you, but you've gone on to do very important work and I appreciate your willingness to continue to do that. Let me ask you about Luxembourg because um, there is a sense that some multinational corporations have tried to take advantage of the tax system in Luxembourg to avoid paying taxes in the U.S. To what extent is that still the case, and have there been regulatory reforms that have made that harder to do? Thank you, Senator, and it's nice to see you again as well. Uh, 
Luxembourg, I think, as you know, was known not only as a tax haven, but as a bank secrecy haven uh, until fairly recently. And um, they have uh, come into conformity with uh, EU rules and regulations. Uh, I think those uh, labels are now in the past. Uh, they have uh, uh, really abolished bank secrecy, and their banking um, industry has now diversified significantly um, in terms of the uh, tax issues, uh, there are still outstanding tax issues that are, uh, um, that, uh, are focused on American companies operating in Luxembourg. The, the issue was that um, uh, Luxembourg had very, very low tax rates that were unfairly uh, impacting the rest of Europe. Those cases um, are being um, worked through in Brussels, and so that uh, um, my EU counterpart would be the, be the person that would be focused on that. But I will say that Luxembourg has signed uh, an agreement to uh, implement the Foreign Account Tax Compliance Act, which as I understand it, um, will uh, go a long way towards uh, um, rectifying uh, any uh, tax issues that might be uh, of note in this country. Thank you. Um, so just a final question for Ms. Hill. I know this is one panel where you don't mind not getting questions, but <laughs> let me, because um, Chairman Johnson raised the refugee issue, and this is something that Malta, because of its geographic location, has been dealing with for a very long time, um, mostly economic migrants who are coming from Africa, as you pointed out. Has Malta um, been involved in the discussions at the EU about how to develop a policy to address the current refugee crisis, and um, do you know what kind of recommendations they would have for the current situation? Thank you, Senator Shaheen. Yes, Malta's been very involved in the current refugee crisis and the current discussions. Although they're still focused on that south to north migration, they did host the EU-African Union Summit on Migration uh, earlier in November, uh, where they discussed various options for dealing with that particular set of irregular migrants going back and forth. Uh, they have been a heavy advocate of the burden-sharing plan that now is being inputted by the EU. Uh, Malta has been calling for this burden-sharing plan for years, and it's finally being implemented with the current refugee crisis. So Malta has been very involved in the discussions and uh, very much looking forward to a reasonable burden-sharing of the migrant issue uh, across the EU. So they've had a very positive um, voice in the current discussions then? It, yes, they have a very positive voice. And are there other ways in which as ambassador um, representing the U.S. that you see that, that the U.S. can support um, what Malta is encouraging and, and what the, where the EU is moving with respect to how to deal with the refugee crisis? Uh, yes, Senator. I think the United States has a lot of lessons learned that we can share with the EU, with Malta specifically. Uh, I think that we have been doing that. Um, our Coast Guard has been doing phenomenal work with the Maltese Armed Forces 
in how to deal with these, uh, these overcrowded boats that are coming through the Mediterranean more effectively. Uh, we've also done a lot of information sharing, lessons learned sharing with the Maltese themselves about processing refugees more effectively and also providing for support services for refugees uh, to better enhance their ability to, to live as refugees uh, in a foreign country. So uh, as ambassador, I certainly plan to continue to encourage these programs and develop these programs, uh, particularly in Malta, to help the Maltese deal with the refugee crisis. Well, thank you very much. I, I would agree. I think we have, um, particularly our Department of Homeland Security has learned a lot because of what uh, we experienced last summer on our southern border. And so some of those um, lessons that we've learned can be shared with other countries dealing with the current situation. So thank you all very much. And again, um, thank you for your willingness to serve the country. And I look forward to as quick a confirmation process as we can move things in the Senate. Thank you, Senator Sheehan. I think you realize we're pretty well dedicated to moving along as well. But by the way, that crisis hasn't ended at the southern border. It's on an uptick again. Um, again, I just want to thank uh, all the family members here for, for coming to the hearing and for the support of uh, the nominees uh, in their efforts. I want to thank all the nominees, the witnesses, for your thoughtful testimony, your answers to our question. Again, thank you for your service to the nation and your willingness to serve in the future. So with that, the hearing record will remain open until December 4th at 5 p.m. for the submission of statements and questions for the record. This hearing is adjourned. Thank you.